So, uh, what I wanted to talk about today, uh, prepared a uh, talk, um, I think it's going to be very interesting, uh, and I think it's also going to hopefully going to be illuminating uh, to a concept, an idea that we're all familiar with on one hand, but I think that uh, the traditional perspective on this very global issue that we have uh, uh, is somewhat narrow. Uh, what I mean by that is, I'm t- I want to talk about Tikkun Olam. Uh, now, Tikkun Olam, the word Olam means world. Uh, so it's a big, big deal. We're talking about fixing the world, healing the world, whichever one. Fixing is a more correct word, more correct definition. But it's a, it's a global issue. It's a massive uh, uh, existential issue for us as individuals, as Jews, uh, but additionally for the Jewish people and the Jewish nation. And the mission and the destiny that began with Abraham, you know, 3,800 years ago in the, in the Fertile Crescent, uh, and that continues to this day uh, from Jews across the world uh, and, and, you know, and, and people that believe in the Jewish mission. Like, this is a big deal. And I've, I have found, maybe I'm wrong, but I've found that there is a tendency to kind of narrow the issue of saying, okay, let's go help at the food shelter. Or let's throw help at the uh, picking up cigarette butts on on the beach, uh, and I think that's uh, that's an unfortunate uh, um, kind of minimization of what is really an enormous enormous topic. Uh, so what I wanted to do is kind of go through a little bit of the uh, of the sources and the ideas and the themes of the Olam, and also to see how it kind of streams through. Almost all the mitzvahs that we have, the entire Torah, the Abrahamic story, the you know the, the, the traditional perspective of of humanity and human history and Jewish history, and how the different uh, steps and uh, epochs, if you will, of Jewish life and progress are linked to various elements of the unbundling of Tikkun Olam. So um, that's the introduction. Uh, the, the, but the idea is, is that this is a topic we're familiar with, and some of the ideas, I assure you, you'll, you, you won't find new. But we're going to try to link them all together and see what kind of emerges uh, as hopefully big picture Jewish destiny and Jewish mission. What do you all say? Sounds good? Sounds good. Uh, okay, so uh, firstly, I think this has probably been established already, but when we talk about the Jewish mission, the Jewish ideal, and the Jewish purpose on a national scale, we're clearly talking about something very big or something with a universal vision. And something universal means the entire world, a universe, right? Uh, but we're kind of, what, 14, 15 million people? Uh, yet we have a universal vision. So we're, 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 we're kind of outsizing our output uh, in the world, right? If you have 14 million people that come and say, we have a vision for everyone, for everything, we're clearly saying uh, we're going to overrepresent our numbers, which is something that we all are familiar with. We know that Jews are overrepresented in every, uh, almost every, I guess maybe even every field of, of accomplishment. We don't laugh anymore. Huh? We don't laugh anymore. That's right. And, and, and there's a theme, a major theme in Judaism that, once again, words we're all familiar with that seems to underscore that point that we have some sort of bravado. We have some sort of, you know, we, we have some pride as Jews. And I'll say words, and everyone will say that familiar with the words, and we'll have a hard time trying to justify it. And that's chosen people. Who here has heard of the term chosen people? Well, who hasn't? We've all heard about it. So on one hand, we have this universal vision. We are going to be the 
pivotal causation for universal change. On one hand. The other hand, we say, we, us, 14, 15 million of us, we're chosen. Now, when we say we're chosen, what does that mean about everyone else? That they're not chosen. That they're not chosen. And like you mentioned, that's, that sounds a little bit conceited. Egotistical. It sounds a little arrogant. Arrogant. Uh, well, I, I'm I'm gonna amend that point. Okay. Um, you know, this is the trying to open up the idea and see where it comes from. What, what does it mean? God chose us. It just we 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 won the lottery. We won the God lottery. Yeah. Uh, is that? But, it's, but it, I'm saying that's what it sounds like. If what about we were handy? It means that it, it, but just yeah. the words that we're all familiar with. Right. We're chosen. That begs a few questions. Number one, why were we chosen? Number two, what does it mean that we're chosen? Number three, how is that not conceded to say they were chosen? It means we're familiar with the term. Where does it come from? Why are we chosen? We're chosen for what? We're chosen to do what? You know? But also, the, the question I think is a fair question. When we say we're chosen, it does sound like maybe a little bit antithetical to some of what we say as Jews to be, to be, you know, to be humble. Moses, the greatest man that ever lived. Our leader that we still today, the most humble man that ever lived. And then we go around saying, chosen people. And everyone else, not chosen. So that's, I think, another point that hopefully we'll address on, on the national um, phase of, of the discussion. I think that gets to your point, though, as far as us being responsible for Tikkun Olam and being uh, broadcasting it to the world would be why would the world accept it from us uh, if they look at, upon us unfavorably, to think that we're conceited, uh, that's Chosen is even grounds for anti-Semitism. So why should anybody accept this message that we're trying to deliver? Uh, okay, that's that, that, that's a good point. But I think that you linked you linked the two things that we brought up very very uh, um, succinctly or very uh, uh, skillfully. Like we brought up two separate issues: Tikkun Olam on one hand, chosen people on the other hand, and you understood that they're linked. Even though it wasn't explicitly mentioned. Good job. And I was going to say chosen people too before you said it. There you go. So I figure I'm, I'm on the right track. Okay, so um, I, want, I want to maybe I, I, I throw in a third, a third discussion linked to the Tikkun Olam. Um, so we say Tikkun Olam. What does that mean? It means fixing the world. Right? Is there a better definition than anyone that wants to... Or repairing. Same. It's a synonym. Uh, fixing, repairing. Okay. Uh, what does that imply about the world? Booyah. Booyah. The world is broken. Now, if you ask uh, the Jewish faith, who made this world? What are they going to say? Well, the, the Almighty, right? And uh, if you ask even further, like, okay, the Almighty, tell me about it. You know, tell me about this idea of the Almighty. Okay, uh, what's it all about? Well, the first thing we would say, well, it's infinite. It's, it's not lacking anything. That's the definitions that we have about, about God. Not lacking anything. Being perfect. Yet, we are delivered a damaged product. We have an imperfect world. We have a broken world that we need to fix. So, I think the next question is, or the next probably two questions is, 
why would we have a broken world? And additionally, why is it broken? Or what about it is broken that we, and how to, and then, that we need to fix? It means we agree that there's a broken world. What's broken about it? Why is it broken? Okay, and once we know what it, what's broken about it, okay, how do we go about fixing that? You don't answer the question. Right? You go ahead. What to call means it's broken. Letachem means to fix. Um, I, I, I think that maybe it's incomplete. It's not uh, uh, the words would be lahashlim, like lahashlama uh, means to complete in Hebrew. Now, um, the words tikrolam, by the way, we think we're, it's, it's it got very popularized uh, recently, but it's actually it's um, the earliest documentation of those words of those words are over three thousand years old. It comes from the Aleinu, the second part of the Aleinu, the second paragraph of the Aleinu. We say, letaken olam, to fix the world, tikkun olam. Uh, then we have in the Mishnah as well, the Mishnah is uh, roughly 2,000 years, let's say more precisely 1,800 years old. That's when it was codified, but it was a collection, or more precisely, a canonization of existing extant writings. So it goes even way before that. And there's an entire section of the Talmud in the book of Gittin. Gittin is the book that, of the Talmud that talks about a divorce. It's one of the 63 books of the Talmud. And in it, it has um, an entire laundry list of themes of Tikkun Olam. So that term is very old. And it's Tikkun Olam, means to fit the world. I, I agree that maybe it's, it sounds it means I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say categorically that if you say that it means to complete the world you're wrong, but the simplest interpretation is is to fix the world. It implies we have a broken world. What's the world broken about? Why would we be delivered a faulty product? Okay, it's broken. We, we, I don't see it. You look around. Like the trees are beautiful. The grass is such a nice neighborhood, right? The uh, the sun looks beautiful, and the stars and the sky and our so, our livers work and our hearts. So are, were we delivered a broken world, or did man kind of? We broke it. I don't know. Although, although nature gives us hurricanes and earthquakes. And okay, yeah. I think you're coming down. You have to define what is But who said it was? Yeah, but them saying the people, it's the way this. But this is a great discussion. Like we're talking about something that we're so familiar with, but we don't even have any basic definitions. Or maybe we do, but um, it, we have to flesh it out. Like what are the definitions? We're talking to go along. What's it? What's it about? So um, I want to uh, introduce an idea and then bring a very, I think, intriguing and compelling and maybe even troubling Talmud, Talmudic source, um, that says something very, very bizarre, and I think will maybe lead us along our path. Uh, so, um, I cleverly decided to omit 
the next two words of, of that earliest source, the 3,000-year-old source, the first time we have documentation of the words, litakein otikun olam. And what it says is like this, litakein olam b'malchut shakai, which means to fix the world with the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God is what's lacking. With the kingdom of God. Yes. To fix the world with the kingdom of God. What this is telling us, that yes, we look around the world and nature, everything seems to work you know, synchronized beautifully. However, right, the artist did not sign his name on the masterpiece, so to speak. Right? And God created such minutia, such detail, such complexity. Such just such wonders, you know, just just for our own physical bodies. There's eight billion of us crawling on this planet, and it's such technology and such sophistication. It doesn't say designed by Apple in California and assembled in China. It doesn't say that. Like that it doesn't have the it doesn't have the uh, little Apple logo on the back. And you have this wonderful piece of hardware and software and integration. It doesn't say who it is. And you try to figure out. You open it up and you read everywhere. All the software. No one signs their name. And, the, you know, the, the world is, is infinitely more complex than anything we could possibly create ourselves. The entire universe and everything works so beautifully and how everything is just perfectly designed to sustain life. And we're 93 million miles away from the, the sun and it's just too close and just close enough, just far enough. And we have this sliver of temperature that you, the human uh, civilization is possible. And we're right there. We have our bodies that are just so perfectly designed and everything works so well. And God made it all. But then inside his name. And people can live their entire lives and not acknowledge God even once. That's possible, right? Is it, is it possible that he, it's, that he didn't sign his name by giving us the Torah? Okay, so maybe, so maybe that's maybe that's like you're being on a point that you that that's trying to fix it, so to speak. Okay, I I, I agree to that point, but hold, hold that thought. Let's go to the problem first. So th- that's a reality, and we know that there are people today that you know that don't acknowledge that there are even people that are that that, that have faith. Do they really let this idea wash over them? The idea of God being in total control and, and kind of relying on God and having faith and doing things that they, that they would not have done if God had not existed. Like that kind of level of life ought to be everywhere, ought to be ubiquitous. Right? If God was present everywhere, if God was just like the idea was tangible and alive for all of us, we would probably behave differently. Right? And the world that does not have this recognition of God is a broken world. It's a broken world. Because fundamentally it's flawed. Because fundamentally the most important fact, the most important reality, the only lasting reality, the eternal reality of humanity, Laurie, is, is God. And we live in a world where that is obscured. That's not present. Thus it's a broken world. And we can infer, if it is a broken world... Because of not recognition of no, no recognition, well, how do we undo that? If we bring the idea of God into the world, then we are fixing the world. Thus, the words, like we said, letakein olam to fix the world with the kingdom of God. How do you fix the world? By bringing out the kingdom of God, where humanity recognizes the existence, the dominion, the, the reign of God. Well, then it's a fixed world. And what we're all familiar about is Tikkun Olam, where, let's say, people helping other people, charity, kindness, uh, tolerance, all those themes are symptoms 
of recognition of God. Once the idea of God is established, well, that demands someone to behave in a different way. That demands someone to do things that, let's say, on a physical, purely materialistic level, they wouldn't want to do. Like, someone gives charity. What are they doing? They're taking money out of their pocket and giving away, and they'll gain no material benefit from it. Why would someone do that? Why would someone... spiritual benefit from it. Yes, but no material benefit, right? When someone does that, they're doing it because they're demonstrating God exists. Thus, there's value in helping others, even if I don't see it. Why? Because doing what's good, doing what's beneficial for my soul, doing what's eternal for my soul, that has value because God exists. Thus, it's fixing the world because you're bringing the idea of God into the world. We'll get to how the nations fit into this as well. Now, when we say chosen people, back to that that original point, we say chosen people. We're chosen for what mission? For leading the mission of fixing the world by bringing the idea of God into the world. And Abraham is the founder of this idea. Why is Abraham? Because he was the one who ushered in a new reality into humanity. He was the first one to intellectually realize that God exists, take this idea and run with it, to try to influence others, to try to teach others, to try to impact others. He's the father of monotheism. He's the paragon of faith. And you open up the Torah books. Let's open the book. What does it say about Abraham? What does it say? What does it talk about his faith? You know what it talks about his faith? Nothing. It doesn't talk about Abraham's faith. We meet Abraham at the age of 75. He's already discovered God. He's already a prophet. First thing we find out about Abraham, God tells him, go leave your land, go to Israel. God's talking to him. Whoa, how did he get there? We don't know. Right? It's, some, it's, it's one of the mysteries of, of, of Torah studies that we don't find out about Abraham, how he developed it. Like if you read a biography, any biography you want to read, it talks about their childhood and their relationships and how they brought them to their greatness or to their status or to the, whatever their accomplishments as an adult. Abraham, we're introduced, maybe the most pivotal figure in all of human history, someone who altered the trajectory of humanity, and we meet him as an adult. We don't find anything very interesting, so intriguing, compelling. The story of Abraham breaking the idols in his right. father's That's from the Midrash. That's the Midrash. Not, I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm not going to say that that's not true. I think it's a thousand percent true. We have evidence that it's true. But the Torah does not present that. Um, what does the Torah indeed present? It presents his kindness. Well, his accomplishments, but primarily in kindness. His kindness with those three travelers. His kindness with, his, with, with Lot. Right? His kindness uh, uh, with the people of Sodom. Sodom and Gomorrah. Even though those people were the entirely opposite extreme of what he believed and what he espoused in, that's what we present him as. Which is another example of the idea of if you bring God into the world, right? if you have the mothership of Tichon Olam, you'll have all the other derivatives of that as well. Uh, now, I, like I mentioned, I'll say this again, we don't. We want to expand the Deftikon Olam. I think, unfortunately, there's, there's a tendency, not, not in this room, I'm saying in this, you know, in, this, in, in our society, to talk about the Olam as isolated acts of kindness and mitzvah, right? And that, I'm not trying to say that that's not Tikkun Olam, but there's a much bigger picture of what Tikkun Olam really is, and that's kind of a result of that, just like Abraham, Abraham has the faith. He begins the mission of Kulam. He begins to undo this fatal flaw that exists in the world. He starts fixing, 
And how does it manifest? It's manifesting kindness in a variety of different ways. Right? The faith begets the kindness, right? Because the faith is at the core of fixing the world, and everything else is a result of that. Um, you said that it comes from the kingdom of God, but uh, I don't know if it's completely off topic if mm-hmm. you want to duck it. But I mean, other faiths have a belief in a different God. Uh, maybe Christians have a holy father, maybe uh, Muslims have Allah. Mm-hmm. Would it be the same God? Is it a different God? Or okay, so that's a little bit off topic, but but I, but no, I'm planning on talking about the other faiths as well. So I'll just okay. I'll just. Fast forward to that point right now to address it because otherwise I might forget. <laughs> I, uh, I don't remember going talking about that. Huh? Remind me in like 27 minutes. Okay. We'll talk about that. No, no, no I'm, I'm just kidding. Let, let, let's address that now. If we look at macro Jewish history, big picture, which then I have a Talmudic source that I want to bring in a little bit later. The big picture is it starts with Abraham. It ends with the, an idea called Messiah. I'll prove to you that Messiah is an idea and I'll, I'll bring the evidence and everyone will agree, even the skeptics. Messiah is an idea, which means a fulfillment of Ikun Olam. That's what it means. I'll bring the evidence. Starts with Abraham. That's the, and, and this is the idea of taking a world that's entirely broken. Abraham begins the process of trying to fix it. It's uh, precipitated, I don't know if that's the right word, or it's accelerated by the Jewish people and Torah, like you mentioned. And it's fulfilled entirely with the idea of Messiah. Now, Maimonides writes, right? Maimonides is the preeminent Jewish halachist and Jewish philosopher. So when I say Maimonides, that carries in a lot, a lot of weight. Everyone's here familiar with the, with the individual. So Maimonides, he writes that our job as being the, uh, the, uh, the uh, standard bearers of the idea of God, the God idea, that is something that maybe in the best case scenario, we would have done on our own. But we have our monotheistic cousins help us with it as well. So, uh, Maimonides famously writes that uh, Islam believes in the exact same God that we do. Thus, Allah and the Jewish God, the definition is actually exactly the same. However, the application is somewhat different. <laughs> but either way, uh, the idea of the fact that there's maybe a billion and a half Muslims in the world, that is fixing the world to a certain extent. It's not, not perfect, of course, not entirely perfect, but the world is, for the most part, fixed uh, by those people. Yes, there's a few radicals, a lot of radicals, right? And the application is somewhat askew. But if you kind of want to revert back to the way it was before Abraham, where there was uh, uh, barbarism, and child sacrifice, and paganism, that world is gone in the Muslim world. And also the Christian world. Now, Christianity is very important. Christianity is not monotheism, right? Once you take the idea of Hashem Echad, one God, and you make parts of it, and Maimonides makes this very clear, God can have no parts, God cannot have any finite representation. So that idea is wrong, and that idea is antithetical to Judaism. However, it's a lot closer than, let's say, what Deo Cassius, the... Uh, the great Roman historian writes about Rome having in excess of 30,000 gods. There's so, a pantheon of, uh, pantheon of gods. Romans had a pantheon. Yeah, so they... Multiple, multiple. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. So, like I said, um, 30,000, they are Cassius, right? Uh, which is an enormous... Like, yes. So that, that has changed dramatically with the helps of our cousins 
the Christians, Muslims. Now, I'll tell you, with well, Christians and the Muslims, and I'll tell you, just kind of to bring this kind of a historical um, basis, who is the ideological father of, of the Arabs? Anyone knows? Ishmael. Who is Ishmael's dad? Abraham. Right? Thus, we say that Abraham, his kind of, you know, his legacy lives in Isaac uh, and Isaac in Jacob, the Jewish people, in its most unadulterated form. However, Ishmael is also a son, and Ishmael also has the Abrahamic influence. Thus, his descendants, right, the Muslims, they are also influenced by Abraham as well. Yeah, doesn't the Quran say Talks that by Ishmael is the one who is supposed to be sacrificed? Yes, yeah, so there were, there were some, uh, yeah, some textual uh, chicanery. He was a he was a first he was a firstborn, which I'm saying it's it's bizarre because Islam is a very very relatively recent religion. Uh, thus, Torah has already been in secular hands for more than 800 years by the time Islam emerges. So it's 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 insane to say that that the Ishmael was the one who was offered uh, the binding of Isaac. Because remember, the book was ready in Gentile. It wasn't just us. You can't say, oh, you know, we changed it later on. It was already in. Uh, Gentile hands, but in the form of the Septuagint. Yeah, that's that, that's that that's the Christians' argument as well. It means they don't reject the fact that the Jews had it; they just say they corrupted it, which is which is the only angle that you can take. It's the angle I would have taken as well if I if I was in charge of Muslim propaganda. I would probably say the same thing, you know. You cannot deny it's what you know. There's, there's no reasonable way to argue that the Jewish people didn't have it, quote, quote unquote. You say, oh, they corrupted it, or they lost. And, and you know what? Well, no, it doesn't because we we we're there first. No one's going to argue that. But I'll say from this Maimonides, this point that we brought up is that yes, in a certain degree, that the, in a certain in a certain capacity, they are right that we didn't corrupt it. However, we might have had some degree of their religion of duty, and that demanded that we have some partners. Like I said, the role of the other great monotheistic religions in this world vision that we have is to assist us in accelerating the idea of God, the idea of monotheism, to the masses. That's to answer your question. Um, and in fact, this is getting sidetracked, but the bigger question that should exist is in the worldview of those religions that view themselves as replacements for Judaism, beginning with the Christians and then culminating with the Muslims, the question that they should have is why the Jews exist. Because if the Jews had it but lost it and were replaced by the Christians, okay, the Jews should disappear. Their role has been, has been sealed, yet we seem to be very resilient. We're still around. And the Muslims as well. Like, to them, the existence of the Jews and the Christians poses a real fundamental question. Why would they... If, if they had it and they lost it, well, then they should, they, they should be scrapped out and they should disappear. Yet, remarkably, remarkably against all odds, the Jews persist. Now, the Christians persisting is not such a big of a question because it's such a large uh, constituency. But the Jews uh, being impervious to genocide and destruction and exile and expulsion and Holocaust is something that should be very fundamentally, philosophically troubling to those those faiths. But anyway, from our perspective is that they play a role in this bitch picture and also it's their link to Abraham as well. By the way, in, in, Juda- in Judaism, in Jewish, in Jewish thought, the, uh, the Christians, they come from Edom. 
and Edom is Esau. Thus, Abraham's son, right? We have one son, uh, Isaac, but the other son goes off to found the Muslims. Now, Abraham's grandson, his two grandsons, Jacob is the father of the Jewish people. Right? Jacob was named Israel because Jacob is the one whose kids, the, the, there's no rotten fruit amongst his kids. His 12 sons comprise the 12 tribes of, of Israel. Thus, his name is changed to, from Jacob to Israel because he is now not just an individual, he is the father of the religion, uh, biologically speaking, with no, with no uh, deviations. But Esau is his twin brother. He's the one who's going to be the father of, of Rome. And Rome, which becomes, becomes Christian in the 4th century of the Common Era, as we all know. So that's just to answer your question. Uh, either way, back to, back to the Jewish mission. So we are here because we are descendants of Abraham. Abraham began a process of fixing the world. And we said Messiah is going to be the final uh, manifestation of that. So I want to share with you guys uh, a famous statement from the Talmud. You may have heard of it. If you heard of it, you probably have no idea where it's from because 99.9% of people that are familiar with this idea have no idea where it's from or what it comes from. So, um, And it's, re- it's relating to the um, Jewish calendar. Not, not, not the month, not the yearly calendar, but the, uh, uh, the collective calendar, right? cumulative calendar. So anyone knows what year we're in in Jewish, the Jewish calendar? absolutely correct. And that calendar begins with... That, that's not correct. No. It's, it's a, yeah, you're a week off, but... A week off. <laughs> so yes, that week of creation is not included. Why is, that not, why is that an important point to stress? It's an important point to stress because that week was a different week than anything we could possibly imagine. As an example... Uh, on day one, Sunday of that week, uh, we have a day, and we don't have a sun. Thus, there's no stars. Thus, we have this reality that a day passes. Yet, what we know, what what we know as 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 the force that regulates a day, that doesn't show up until Wednesday. We have no idea what marked the day on day one. Could that have been 200 billion years or could it have been maybe 24 hours? We have no idea. There's no way for us to try to speculate even. Uh, well, there has been plenty of speculation. Uh, so never underestimate the passive human speculation. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that's an open question. You know, and That's why there's no actual contradiction between science and the Right. So there's been many, many, many uh, attempts to try to re- reconcile. 13.8 billion years that the science currently has, which is interesting because in the past 10 years they shaved off 1.6 billion. Right, so, so that if, seems if, if to be... That's the first week. Yeah, well, well, and also remember we have 31 verses in Genesis to tell us about the entire creation of everything. It's clearly not an exhaustive detailing of everything that happened Maybe. It's very, very short. Yes. So, uh, and then day four, we meet the sun. And what happens day six? Well, we meet Abraham. I uh, meet Adam. And the Talmud says Adam is created at noon on day six. Uh, at one o'clock, Eve is created. At two o'clock, they mate. At three o'clock, their babies are born. Right? Does this sound like a regular day? 
I guess an hour was nine months. Sounds like a shotgun wedding. I, I don't know how you mate and have a baby within an hour. I, I've had four kids. It seems like it's a longer process with some morning sickness in the way. Oh, yeah, that's a day six. Yeah, that's... Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Yes. I don't know what it is, but it's clearly not working with the same mechanisms that we have today. The end of the seventh, right? So then, then there's the Shabbat, and then there's a lot. That's the, the Shabbat, and then after the Shabbat, they're kicked out of our Darvim, and there's the flying sword, and that's when we start the clock. No, not the beginning of time. Beginning of the Jewish clock, right? Right. So we're counting five thousand seven hundred seventy-five years since Adam has been expelled, expelled um, uh, from. The Garden of Eden. What happened before that is an open mystery. Adam seems to be created twice. You just read it. It seems that Adam is created twice. There's Adam and the Adam. Is it possible this is some humanoid? Is this homo, some Homo sapien? Is this a Neanderthal? Uh, is this just Adam twice? These are all open questions. We we don't know the answers to these questions. Uh, Adam one, Adam two. There's many many theories, many speculations. There is, there is, uh, yes. Uh, it's not in ancient Jewish writings. It's kind of um, this interest in this question has uh, has exploded in the past fifty years, and the reason why is because the entire idea of trying to com- make compatible Torah and science is a new idea. Uh, because a hundred years ago, Torah and science were fundamentally incompatible because Torah talked about a beginning. The very first word in the Torah is in the beginning. Whereas science, already since the times of, of Aristotle and the, and the Greeks, had argued that there was no beginning, that the world was eternal. Now, in the 1960s, uh, the, the, the cosmic radiation, uh, kind of the, the, the after effects, the echoes of the Big Bang, uh, became undeniable. Uh, and thus, the entire scientific community finally agreed to the very first word of the Torah. And it took 2,400 years, but they got there. Uh, so then everyone's like, oh, okay. But so now there's maybe some sort of overlap. There's room for coexistence of these two ideas. Now let's see what else could coexist. So, so That's why there's been, an, there's been an explosion in that kind of study in the past 50 years. So over 95% of scientists can agree on a certain theorem and it can be proven wrong. Over, we mean much more than that. Like we're talking about thousands and thousands of years of the Jews and the Jewish, just the, even the first word of our most sacred book being ridiculed as being nonsense. We really lived with that, and therefore it was just, okay, so they don't want to accept it, we don't want to accept what they're saying, and we're totally different camps. There's been some sort of convergence of the two, and incidentally, we didn't have to pivot. The Torah, we didn't have to pivot. We, didn't have to, we haven't to amend anything yet. Uh, but there, you know, so that's why there. This recently, this has become a a, a very popular form of, of of scholarship. Yes, go ahead. This is uh, that. That's that's. Uh, I'd say that's uh, something we. You know, maybe maybe I'll bring in some ancillary points related to that. But that's. The only way we can even discuss that is by discussing the fact that we can't discuss it. We haven't found that 
No, it's not not the book. It talks about the beginning before the beginning. Right, but it it really it because you talk about the Big Bang. Uh, so if we say that maybe the universe was created out of some initial Big Bang, which was something before that was. Well, there has to be something before. Everyone's reading has to be something before that. Right. So, but no, but the idea of a creation of time, space, and matter is something that we agree to as well. That's my only point. So. Uh, well, that's, that's, yes, uh, ex nihilo, yeah, yes, the, yes, no, absolutely. That's yesh me'ayin. Well, we yeah, don't need science's permission for anything. No, mathematically. Yeah, I, I agree. That's what I'm saying. There's the been... I, 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 I agree with that. So and that's a new thing. I'm gonna point out, all I want to point out that that was a new thing. That's true. And uh, Yes, but that's true. And thankfully, that we have now some, uh, you know, common vernacular we can share about this idea of a beginning. When, I, when, I, when, I, when, I, when we talk about this first week of creation and how that is compatible, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, uh, with the current scientific model of a 13.8 billion year gap from today, uh, working back towards this big bang, if that's compatible with that first week is a very interesting question. Because after that first week, once we meet Adam, all we have is 5,775 years, which is significantly less uh, then 13.8 billion. <laughs> Even though in the past 15 years that number has gone down from 15.4 billion to 13.8 billion, not materially. Uh, oh, what's two billion years? One point. Oh, yes, one point six. Yes, yes. Who's who's really counting, right? Uh, so that that's my that, that that's the only point I wanted I wanted to bring. Uh, it's a fascinating discussion. I have a lot to say on the idea of Torah and science. Maybe if you guys ever invite me back, uh, we could talk about that. Yes, that's exactly what I wanted to bring about. The idea of 6,000. Who here has heard of the 6,000 years? Who has heard it? Has anyone heard of that? Who has heard of the idea of a 6,000 year world? You've heard of it? We have, okay, we have two. We have two. Has anyone else here heard? You mentioned it. 5,700. So what do we have? We have 225 years till we reach 6,000. Is anyone here besides for these two gentlemen familiar with the idea of a 6,000 year world? Anyone heard of it? No. Okay, so you've heard of it. Do you know where it's from? Do you have an idea what it would? Say yes or no. <laughs> so this is something that a lot of people are familiar with, but I said 99.9% of people don't know where it's from or what the context is. Today, I'll share with you the context. Okay, so this idea of 6,000-year world is a very, very commonly, uh, I guess, uh, a point that's commonly encountered by or people familiar with, vaguely at least, uh, what we're going to do today is kind of discuss um, the sources. What does the source say? So there's a source from the Talmud. Uh, the Talmud is in a book called Sanhedrin. So we mentioned already earlier that there's 63 books in the Talmud. We mentioned one that talks about divorce. Sanhedrin talks about uh, law. Law and jurisprudence, composition of courts, capital punishment, uh, um, stuff like that. And on page 97a, it says as follows. This is a direct translation. 6,000 years is the world. Probably you would translate it as the world is 6,000 years or something like that. 6,000 years of the world is the world. 2,000 chaos, 2,000 Torah, 2,000 Messiah. Okay. The Talmud says, this is where it comes from. This is the source. There's no other source for it. Right? Shis alfenshana hava alma. 
sixth in Aramaic, six thousand years is the world, two thousand years chaos, two thousand years Torah, two thousand years Messiah. And to harken back to the point that I brought earlier, I said that Messiah is an idea. Clearly, if Messiah is a two thousand year project, we don't know anyone that's that old, right? Anyone knows any two thousand year old people? Even Methuselah, right? Even even Methuselah, right? Not quite there. Right. So the idea of Messiah is, is more, yes, there, there, there's the idea of, of an individual, but it's also an entire kind of 2,000-year uh, process. This Talmud is telling us macro Jewish and world history. That's what I'm talking about. It's 1,000 years. It's not the entire world. What happens in the 7,000 years is it also an open question. Right? The Talmud discusses it as well. But for our purposes, it's 6,000 years. We're up to 5775. Thus, we have 225 years left to go to fulfill this, uh, this uh, destiny. What this is telling us is what is going to happen with this process of Tikkun Olam. This is the macro picture of Jewish mission, Jewish purpose, and Jewish destiny. We have 2,000 years of chaos. Now, what's, what does it mean chaos? Right? Chaos, this is already after Adam is created. So we already have a functioning ecosystem that we live in. It's not chaos in the form of an ice age or something like that, uh, or, or uh, dinosaurs. It's, it's, it's some sort of a spiritual chaos. Booyah. They have thousands. Right, yeah, exactly. Or they have thousands, but remember, thousands of gods, those are all, that's, that's, that's uh, not just uh, quantitatively, that's qualitatively different than not having gods. So you're both saying the same thing, but if you have a thousand different little just trinkets that you that you label as powers. That's not that's that's gods, but that's not really any that that that's not our, qualitatively a different idea uh, than anything physical, right? The idea of a god is something infinite, something beyond the physical, something that existed before time and space, right? Well, it's nonsense, right? That's right. But that that's chaos. It's chaos because there's lack of vision, there's lack of purpose, there's lack of understanding. Like the world is kind of walking aimlessly and blindly. Because it misses this core idea. It's, it's once again, the God signature is not there. And people are trying to find things, but they're running into, you know, into dead ends. Human nature seeks for the source of why they're there. Yeah, and what do they do? They see the sun, and the sun is so wonderful. It provides, uh, well, let's worship that, or let's worship the stars, let's worship, I don't know, some sort of wonderful uh, uh, statue or some, or some cow. I don't know what, but let's let, you know, people are, are but they're aimless. Right? They're blind, and they're not. It's it's chaotic because what happened? Humanity is kind of failing at the mission that they were entrusted with, fixing the world. In the year 1948, since Adam, so it's an easy year to remember because we know 1948 uh, of of our calendar is when we found the state of Israel. Uh, Abraham was born. Abraham was born in the year 1948. Post Adam, that's right. And Abraham, he's the one who's going to start the process of ending the chaos. And he was one who, on his own, with his own intelligence, with his own capacity, with his own understanding, using logic, he deduced that God must exist. And by power of his intelligence, he was way ahead of the, you know, of, 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 uh, on the cutting edge. And he kind of proved to himself and then to his followers that God exists. And the God, not the God that you could see and interact with and touch and smell and, right? 
Not something physical, not something finite, something infinite, something beyond, something not existing in time and space. He proved that already then. Thus, suddenly the chaos is slowly being cast away. There's some clarity now emerging. Abraham, at the age of 52, did something remarkable. That's exactly at the year 2000. Abraham discovered Torah. Now we know that Abraham preceded Moses. Abraham was the great, 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 great grandfather of Moses. Thus, and Abraham was there before Sinai. Abraham's dead way before Sinai. Abraham managed to uncover Torah by a, an incredible process uh, of digging within himself to uncover the power of his soul that innately knows Torah. Now I want you guys to just accept that as factors. I'll try to prove it a little bit later on. Uh, but we know this is already sourced in many, many places in, in Jewish writings that Abraham studied Torah. He studied Torah from his own, from, from himself, internally, not externally, not like receiving it as prophecy or from Moses or instruction or, or, or tradition. No, it was born internal. And we know that he completed that at the age of 52. And I've also heard that all babies in utero know Torah. Yes, I know. I know. I mentioned that. I mentioned that in many classes. Thank you. And I'm going to get to that. I'm going to get to that because we're going to try to bring this from a macro, national, global uh, perspective to a more personal perspective. And then we'll talk more about the soul and how how there's a parallel uh, between what has to happen to the Jewish nation and what ought to happen with the Jewish individual. Thus... Abraham's emergence, Abraham's uh, accomplishments, Abraham's developments and progress in this idea sealed the chaos. Chaos is no longer the dominant uh, reality in the world because there is a glimmer, a flicker, a flame, an inspiration of Abraham, of God. We started, started, started Torah, yes, but we know that there was, there's, there's, it was a progress. We have, we have, we have markers at the age of three, at the age of forty, at the age of fifty-two, at the age of seventy-five, at the age of, uh, of, of eighty-six, at the age of ninety-nine, at the age of hundred. There's different markers in Abraham's life that we're familiar with. We know at the age of, at the age of ninety-nine, that's where he meets those. That's where he does the circumcision. That's why at eighty-six is when Ishmael was born. Uh, thus, Ishmael's 13, as we know, the ancient uh, Islamic tradition of getting a circumcision at the age of 13 comes from that. Ishmael was 13 when Abraham was 99, and Abraham is instructed to give circumcision, and he circumcises his son, his 13-year-old son, and himself. And that's when he meets those people, or what he thought were people, angels masquerading as people, and he tells them that in a year you'll have another son being born this time to Sarah, and that's at the age of 100. That's when Isaac is born. So... But either way, so there are different marker points in, in, Abraham's, in Abraham's life. But Abraham is the one that begins this process of undoing the chaos, of fixing the world. Now, this is a, a crucial point. If you look at Genesis chapter 17, uh, that is where Abraham receives this, I guess, promotion, uh, but probably more precisely a responsibility that's going to outlast his own life and most likely our own lives as well. And that is the national mission of the Quran. That's where God tells Abraham, you chose me. You on your own chose me. Therefore, I choose you. 
and I choose your kids. Thus, and this is what I wanted to uh, bring uh, back, we didn't win some God lottery to become God's chosen people. We became God's chosen people. If you look at Genesis chapter 17, uh, verses 1 through, I think, 8 or 9, it makes it clear that us being formed as a nation, being descendants of Abraham, we'll, we'll have to go to Egypt, and that has to be prerequisite, and we'll go out, and we'll get the Torah, we'll get Israel. All those things are a result of Abraham's relationship with God. Thus, because Abraham, our forefather, our ideological but also biological uh, um, antecedent, his dedication, his commitment, his beginning of the process of Tikkun Olam, that is going to be perpetuated by a national effort of Tikkun Olam. Thus the Jewish nation, and thus the Jewish mission, and thus chosen people were chosen, yes, but not randomly, were chosen because Abraham was chosen, and Abraham was chosen because of his special relationship with God, because he chose God. Thus Abraham chooses God, Abram gets chosen that his kids, his descendants, will be a will be the Jewish nation that's going to going to complete the next phase of the Quran. Now, what happens? When do we get formed as a nation? Who knows? As a nation, not 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 year. The year is twenty four forty eight. I'll tell you that year as well. Five hundred exactly five hundred years after Abram was born. No, that's that's much earlier. We know that uh, um, when we had the Exodus and we had the Mount Sinai experience. Right? So we have 500 years after Abraham's born, Abraham's long gone, we have his descendants, which is now a formidable nation. They are formed as a nation. And there's many times I have lots of evidence that Abraham, in fact, was not Jewish, quote-unquote, because Judaism was not founded as a nation the Exodus and the Mount Sinai experience. That's when the nation was formed, and we read it every day in the Shema. It says that very clearly, God took us out of Egypt to make us to, to make us His nation. We'll be His. He'll be our God. We'll be His nation. You'll be a kingdom of peace and a holy nation. It says that the Exodus is many is copious evidence to this point. We accept that we do. Yeah, but that that we see this is a process. It's only it's it's only fifty days after the after the Exodus. It's entire it, the entire thing is is it's kind of one, uh, uh, one uh, progressive discovery or or uh, revelation. And what what do we get right after that? We get something very important. Right when we got founded as a nation. And what's the, what's the Torah's role? The Torah's role is to be a national guide for the Jewish people to continue this mission. To go right? the, the Torah is kind of like a, even if almost a physical manifestation, we, we read the Torah, and this is God's work, and you say, who's the author? And it's, it's God. It says it many, many times, this is God the author, right? And it's, it's, it's the manual, it's the instructions, and it's what we have lived by for millennia now. And this ushers in the next stage of it's not just an individual, a man, maybe a family, uh, Abraham and his family, even a tribe. It's a nation now. And it's a nation that's going to live by this idea of fits in the world, of bringing the day of God into the world. That is an acceleration. It's the next day. That's Torah. Right? 2,000 years of chaos. Abraham changes that. 2,000 years of Torah. Whereas the Jewish nation, kind of almost independently on their own, because we didn't, the Christians aren't created until the last stage of the 2,000 years, which 
very interesting. If you look at the markers of when the last thousand years, when, when year 4,000, is almost exactly at the formation of Christianity. Uh, where suddenly we have partners. But for those 2,000 years, it's Abraham, but Abraham not just as an individual, Abraham as the father of a nation. Abraham as not just the guy who's starting to undo the chaos, but the father of the nation that's going to take this on as their collective mission to end the chaos. So if we got the Torah 3,500 years ago, how do they measure those 2,000 years of Torah? Okay, so let's say it, it, Torah is a, is a process. It starts with Abraham. Abraham starts studying Torah on his own. Uh, it, it accelerates, of course, with 500 years later, or just 450 years later, with the actual, you know, Abraham taught Torah to his kids. They had some understanding of Torah. Right, and he taught that to his children. We know that uh, Jacob observed the entire Torah. Jacob's kids observed observed Torah. Yes, it was it was still germinating, so to speak. It wasn't it wasn't a it wasn't a complete. It wasn't the full manifestation of what Torah is. But we got the Torah. We're already a nation, right? We're already a nation. That's why we went into Egypt, right? Because if you look at Genesis, like we said, chapter seventeen, where this began, it, it becomes clear that going into exile, going into slavery as a nation. Is part of the process, which is another good question. Why does that be part of the process? I'm going to give an entire talk about that. Uh, if you want to, because I need a link to my, on my website, rabbi.com, you can see. We were talking about why why a prerequisite for, for the Jewish nation is to, be, is to be enslaved. It's a very good question. But this is part of the 2,000-year block of the Jewish nation fulfilling the national mission, right, and, and trying to uh, accelerate what Abraham began. And it's called Torah generally because the Torah is the major tool that we have to do that. So yes, indeed, we haven't got, we didn't get the actual Torah until uh, much later, or well, not much later, until four hundred some odd years later, into the next to that block of two thousand years, so twenty percent in. Uh, but we did have some understanding of Torah, uh, but we also had a we had a sense of, of national uh, existence uh, from that from that point in time when, when we we get told that we're going to be a nation, and of course the Torah developed and expanded. You know, but you look at the at, at the hundred hundred that uh, the thirteen hundred years from receiving the Torah uh, till like the end, really more fourteen fifteen hundred years till the end of that thousand year cycle, we were on our own basically, and we had interactions, of course, uh, with the Assyrians under the leadership of Sanhairev, the Babylonians, and the leaders of Nebuchadnezzar. Right? We had the uh, the unforgettable uh, Persians. We had the unforgettable Greeks and their various offshoots in the, in the, in the Ptolemies, the Seleucids, the Syrian Greeks. Uh, of course, we had the Romans and had that work out really nicely. We, ha- we had so every, everyone we encountered with, every major uh, world force that was, was antagonistic. Now, not to say that the ones that came future in the, afterwards were not antagonists, they were indeed, but they were antagonistic ideologically. Like they, the, there was no... Uh, interface between what we believed theologically and what the people we encountered believed theologically. And then at the beginning of the next 2,000 years of Messiah, Messiah is a process of not this idea being national and limited to us, but it's the entire world, which is the ultimate completion. Now it's not the, the third step in this process. It starts off with Abraham, one man, Maybe a family, a tribe, a nation, and now it's the entire world. That's the last 2,000 years. That's what their Messiah is. And suddenly we see emergence of these massive, massive civilizations and, and belief systems that seem to parallel ours. And yeah, you may argue it's maybe it's just a coincidence. But according to this 
the one line of Talmud, this is, this is all part of the plan. Whereas now it's the time for getting everyone on board. We have 225 years to get everyone on board. Yes, you, you, you could argue that, you know what, nowadays it's almost universal, this idea of God. Um, especially in the Western world. You talk, you talk to people about God in, in, in the Western world. You're basically talking about the Jewish God. You know, some people are Christians or so slightly off, you know, or the Muslims. Of course, they have their other issues. You might not want to have this kind of conversation with them. Uh, but, but either way, this idea has become ubiquitous in the world. And we see, we look back and we see that the idea of like, this 2,000-year process of Messiah is kind of coming to fruition. Is it complete? No, it's not complete. Because if what were we complete, then we would, have, we, you know, we, would, we, we would live in a world where that has to go along. And that would look different than at the world that yeah, we have but, today. But even though, even though the majority of the world is either Christian or Muslim or like Jew, said, or, or Jewish, especially in Europe, they're getting further and further away, you know, from their religion. They're, they're yeah, the, the, que- the question is: is is that a long term trend or a short term trend? It's, 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 it's I, I'm not disagreeing with your point, uh, but, but it, I, I think that you know, if you look at religious tendencies, trends uh, over a 2,000-year time horizon, I don't think you would agree. I think there's always going to be uh, like kind of swinging like a pendulum, uh, like even even the Muslims. You know, the Muslims have had times where they've been very extreme uh, and like the Almohads in the Middle Ages. Yeah, it could be um, sh- and then there's times where they're very moderate. Uh, I think that the past 200 years is an example of like since the, I guess the emancipation of of Jews, or really the Enlightenment uh, and the um, you know the Enlightenment. That period has been a time of kind of a, a consolidation or, or a clarification or a calibration of 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 non-Jewish religion. Well, it could be short term because in, in Europe their birth rate is barely one, and Muslims their birth rate is quite high. Yeah, but uh, yeah. That's true. Uh, my, my point is is that yes, I would argue that you're right, but I don't think that I don't think that necessarily that's going to. I'm not trying to argue that the Christians are so great. That's not my point. My point is is that long term trends is this a blimp on on the statistical uh, 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 stream, uh, or is this a long term secular decline of Christianity? And I think. I would argue that it's not. It, right, right. That, that's also true. And that's why there's today there's a lot, there's there's tens of thousands of, of, of ex Christians that are 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 looking at Judaism. So it's a, it's a incredible it's we have never had this. Yeah, Jews in America. That's, yes, that's. Uh, I would say that's an, that's an, that's an, that's an unfortunate. I would I would argue that's unfortunate. That's what's happening. It's not necessarily moving away from God or even away from our religion. Maybe because institutions weren't doing a good enough job of showing their value. Okay, but either way, that is the big picture of Jewish history. That's where the idea of 6,000 years come from. And this is how we look at Jewish history uh, and world history in the prism of Tikkun Olam. 
these are three different distinct stages of, uh, of undoing this process of fixing the world. Um, and it's kind of remarkable. You look at the dates and it's, it's almost, you know, it's, 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 you get goosebumps when you actually look back and you see, wow, like you actually see this happening uh, historically. Okay, so, 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 so if, if that's the national, Jewish national, that's where the Yikul comes from. That's what it means, and this is how it works uh, out historically. Um, how do we do it? If that's what Yikul is, that's what, how do you fix the broken world? Like, what do you go about doing it? And we mentioned the Torah as being the tool. What about the Torah really helps us do this? Or more specifically, what about our behavior? Helps us in the, our behavior as as guided by the Torah. How does that help us to bring this end goal? Uh, so I want to share with you guys some cool ideas um, that we find. So um, who are the three most pivotal characters in uh, in this? Um, in this three-pronged process of Tihulam. So, of course, we have the first 2,000 years of chaos, and then we meet who? We meet Abraham. We have the next 2,000 years of Torah, and that's where the nation kind of takes root, and that's where we get the Torah. And who is the, who is the most important leader of, of, of that 2,000-year time period? Mm-hmm. Moses. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely correct. And we have the last two thousand years, and the idea of Messiah, and who will be the most important Jew, the leader for the Jews at that time? Okay, that's what you would think, maybe working backwards. Maybe that maybe those have been the most significant leaders so far. We wouldn't be here without. Them. That's absolutely true. We wouldn't be here without Rakiva, and I would argue that a lot of Jews would not be here if not for the Rambam, not for the Maimonides. It's a good argument. Uh, but there's even a more pivotal character that we don't even know his name. Who would that be? We don't know his name. You would you would spitball ideas. I don't know. Give us something else. It's not the Mashiach because he hasn't come yet. Okay, but it is the Mashiach. The idea of the of the individual who's we call Mashiach is the individual under whose leadership. This is going to all get done. It's not some magical creation, not some fanciful fantasy. Uh, it's 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 the Jewish leader at the time where this gets fulfilled, where the, where the, the, we reach a completion, and then we're done. So like I said, we don't know who he is, but we understand the role that he's going to play in this process. So has this person already been born? I don't know. That's the correct answer. I assure you, it's not me. Don't don't. Thank you, Is the concept of Messiah first brought out around two thousand years ago, or did it really formally exist? Well, well, the concept of Messiah, like I said, the Messiah. I have an entire talk on Messiah. What it means. How do you how do you become it? What are the what are the roles? Uh, the word Messiah means anointed one. It comes from. Um, it comes from the idea of we even had a few in, in the temple. The idea of, of consecration. So when you inaugurate something holy, you pour oil in it. Thus, ancient uh, priests, Jewish priests, kohens, were they poured oil on their heads and they poured oil on the temple uh, vestments and, and vessels and they poured oil on King David and King Solomon and King Saul. 
right? So that that's that's where the word comes from. So it's yes. Well, no, it's David called Messiah. Mashiach Hashem, David called Messiah. Meshuach, at least. Uh, even the calling adult called, is called Meshiach. So, yes. Uh, I don't know if it's in the Torah. That's a good question. Yeah, yeah. But but it's it's an idea that is very well established. And even if it's not mentioned explicitly, it is mentioned in the Torah. You know, the Torah talks about, about the idea of coming back and collecting the Jews from all over, bringing them back to Israel, reestablishing it. Those ideas are there. Um, uh, but, you know, like the Solomon Rabbi Tiva, Rabbi Tiva uh, thought that Bar Kokhba was the Messiah. Uh, which one? Oh, interesting. Um, so. Uh, but either way, that, this is not a new idea. It's not, the idea of Messiah is, is not a new idea at all. Um, so those are the three pivotal characters in this. In this, I'm, I'm not saying that the Messiah will be greater than Rabbi Akiva. That's not my point. The point is, is that that's the individual that's going to lead uh, or complete the effort of uh, fixing the world. Now, No, no, that's the big, that's the two thousand year process of Mashiach beginning. So we would say that any the Mashiach could come at any point, any point. In in this span, that yes. we have two, two, two yes. twenty-five left on. Yes, that's all we have. And what happens afterwards? That they have the seven thousandth year is also discussed in the Talmud, and we'll hold off on that thought right now. Uh, but the, 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 that same Talmud does talk about the what happens in seven thousand year. Booyah. And we even find back in scripture the idea the idea of we even find the idea in scripture that that uh, that uh, that every day for God is a thousand years for us. The Elf Shom is a verse in, in Psalms. Every right? A thousand years for us is one day for God. Thus there's the parallel. Uh, so you're hundred percent correct. Um, but how it works out in detail, no one really knows. And Maimonides makes that clear. And if if anyone would have known it would have been Maimonides. But he makes it very clear with us Mashiach, we don't really know because we're not supposed to know. And it's on, you know, we have our mission, and what happens when we complete it, uh, that's an open question. We know some vague details, like we know some of the qualifications of Messiah, etc. Um, Isn't our writing that like anybody that you come in contact with could potentially be a Mashiach, and you, that's why you're supposed to accept all the people? Well, no. So, like, no, I would, no. I would out. I, I think Mashiach has to. Maimonides are very clear. He has to be a direct descendant of King David. He has to be a direct descendant, right? Because we know that Jewish royalty has to come from the house of David, from the tribe of Judah. He has to be a direct descendant of King David. Uh, so not everyone is a direct descendant of King David, and thus is ineligible to be a Mashiach. Um, other qualifications: they have to be uh, as wise as uh, <coughs> someone who is a prophet on, on par with Moses, someone who is a, a, a wise on par with Solomon. Someone who's going to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, um, which I already think is, is not so much of a stretch now that there's already six million Jews in Israel, bring the Jews back to Israel, or at least maybe accelerate that. So um, a lot of qualifications 
that ha that have to be fulfilled that not everyone can do it uh, but I'm sure there's a lot of people that have the potential and you know we have our responsibilities as well uh, this is the leader but doesn't mean that the leader on his own is able to usher and affect change uh, but either way these are the three most pivotal characters now we find some very interesting um, parallels between these three leaders. And there's something very, perhaps we would view as innocuous, uh, of uh, uh, a parallel between these three leaders. We find Abraham rode on a horse, uh, on a donkey, I'm sorry. doesn't seem like it's that remarkable. Torah seems an awful rode on a donkey, and then you would kind of question what's the importance of the Torah telling us that he rode on a donkey. Maybe what if he rode on a horse, or he was in a wagon, or he walked. Doesn't seem doesn't seem to be very consequential, right? But we're told that regardless. Additionally, we're told that Moses rode on a donkey as well. And lastly, we're told that Messiah will run on a donkey, ride on a donkey. Ani harochev al chamor. They had the horses. We know they had the horses. But we have this this visual. Huh? Well, either way, this is just a, 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 yeah, well, this is just something that we're told about these people. Now, additionally, the Midrash does say that the same donkey that Abraham rode is the same donkey that Moses rode and the same that Messiah rode. What that means, I have no idea. Is it the same physical donkey, the same spiritual donkey? I don't know. But I'll tell you guys something really cool. I just, I want, I, I don't want to get too sidetracked with what, what we may view as being impractical. But I want to bring some practical, uh, it's not just about the mode of transportation or kind of, you know, some sort of cool idea of this white donkey. And um, The word for donkey in Hebrew is chamor. Chamor, the Hebrew C-H, like the German C-H. <laughs> that sound, chamor. Okay. And the Hebrew word for materialism and physicality is chomer. Chamor and chomer, those words sound the same, right? Um, and we find many, many references that the idea of chamor, of, of a donkey, is the most physical thing. And physicality, which is linked to our body, which is linked to our yetzirah, evil inclination, that is the force that tries to push us away from God. Thus, if you were to say, what is the, manif- the spiritual manifestation of, of, of a broken world? It would be our chamor. Our chomer, our physicality, our body, our yetzerah. And perhaps the argument on the other side would be our soul, our spiritual side, or maybe perhaps our intellectual side, provided our intellectual side is not, uh, is not biased. But that's really how this uh, conflict exists within us, within us as individuals, but within the entire world. You know, this, this conflict exists because we, 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 it, you know, we have physical senses, we interact with the world in a physical way, and we don't see God. So we don't see God, we don't smell God, we don't, see, we don't encounter God in a sensory way, and therefore we assume that he's not there, and that's why the world's broken. But once we start thinking, and we try to tap into our soul as well, then we expose God. Thus, the conflict that exists in the world, or the, the, the chaos that exists as, uh, as a reflection of a broken world, that within humanity is because of this chaos that exists within ourselves, in that we have physical tools, and that's of primary importance, uh, of, or, or in the pecking order, that is uh, of, of more, uh, of more uh, power, 
than our spiritual side. Thus, our spiritual side has less of a say, less of a, of, of a perception and a connection with what our consciousness is, and therefore we don't see God. Thus, if someone wants to see God, what do they need to do? They need to expose their soul, essentially. They need to uh, uncover the tools that are able to have this connection with God. Our, our body cannot have a connection with God. Our body, our body is physical. It's finite. God is not physical and not finite. And therefore, there's no, there's, no, there's no interplay between those two. However, our soul is infinite. Our soul is not physical. Thus, our soul can, ha- can have some sort of relationship with God. Thus, the way for us to have this connection with God and thus fix the world is to overcome, so to speak, our physicality, is to suppress and subject our physicality, and to make sure that our soul is in charge. And if our soul is in charge, well, then we'll have a direct connection with God, no problem. Thus, exposing our soul is essentially exposing God in the world. We're told Abraham, Moses, Messiah, right on, right on donkeys. Now, is that just telling us inconsequentially their mode of foundation? I would argue that not. You know, I think it's probably more effective. Messiah Road may be a nice, uh, I don't know, Audi or something. <laughs> I, I don't know, right? American Pharaoh. Yeah. Oh, by a Jewish guy, by the way. Um, yeah, he's actually Orthodox. He's an Orthodox Jew of, of Egyptian descent. Thus, he wow. gave this. Yeah, interesting. Either way. He spent Shabbat there. That's what I heard. Did he win? Yeah, he won. He won the triple crown. Oh, either way, let's not do sidetrack here. Then we can, yeah. But the point is, is that when it says that Abraham, Isaac, Abraham, Moses, and Messiah ride in horse, ride in donkeys, I think it's telling us an incredibly deep idea. It's telling us that these people that accomplished more than anyone else in their uh, uh, affecting the world of exposing the idea of God. How did they do it? And thus, how do we emulate them? And how do we do it on our own personal scale? They did it by riding a donkey. We have a rider who's in control, and then you have a donkey which is being controlled. The donkey represents their physical. They were able to flip the switch or to, 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 to turn it all around, where it's not their body, their physical, their their ra, their evil inclination controlling them, telling them what to do, pointing them in the way that they, they ought to go. Rather, they were in con- control and they suppressed, they subjected, they were on top of their donkey, so to speak. That behavior, that accomplishment, is what exposed their soul, so to speak. The soul was in control of the body, not the other way around. Thus, they had this relationship with the God. Thus, they fixed the world. They, they brought down, they fixed the world with the kingdom of God. That's what it's telling us. Which is what it's meant to do. Right. Asceticism. Asceticism is not a Jewish idea. That's right. Hundred percent. Good point. Being in control. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Now, we talk about the Torah. I think that maybe one of the most common questions that I get about the Torah, we we view the Torah as being this tool that we're going to use to fix the world. 
fix ourselves and fix the world. That's what it is. He said, there's 2,000 years of Torah. What does that mean? 2,000 years of Tikkun Olam via Torah. That's what it means, right? How is the Torah going to affect Tikkun Olam? That's it's one of the great mysteries, right? You open the Torah, you see lots of restrictions, lots of laws, lots of prohibitions. Don't do this, don't do that. Don't eat this, right? Don't eat that, right? Don't sleep with this person, don't sleep with that person. Don't do this in Shabbat, don't do that in Shabbat. All these restrictions. And the common question you get, does God really care if I eat cheeseburger? Is that really so important? Is that really? God created heaven and earth and all the cosmos. That's what's important to him. Is it so important? You know, what kind of shaver I use to shave my beard? Is that really so important? Like, these, that's a good question. Uh, but I, I think that an argument can be made that essentially the Torah is doing more than any other, I guess, method of instruction, it is creating uh, this dynamic where we are in control of our physical. It's possible that indeed a cheeseburger, there's nothing immoral about it. That's a very good argument. However, what the Torah is telling us, I, it's God speaking here, I want you, Mr. Jew, to do Tikkun Olam. Because that's your mission. That's what's going to bring you the most uh, sense of accomplishment and meaning in your life. That's what I want. However, you have a major impediment and obstacle to doing that. You are innately driven, right? And you're innately controlled by your donkey. You actually have a donkey on your back and he's guiding you. That's what's happening. And the only way for you to have a meaningful life in the capacity of Tikkun Olam, the only way for you to do that is to make sure you switch that dynamic. Well, how do you do that? You've got to pull the guy off your back. Well, how do you pull the guy off your back? You suppress him. You control him. You moderate him. You, lim- you harness him. You limit him. That's how you do it. And slowly but surely, you un, uh, unburden yourself from that control of, of the Yetzirah. That's, how, that's what you do it. So it's possible, I'll make the argument, it's possible that, yes, the Torah is, it's, maybe, maybe she, not eating this, not eating that, not doing this. All, all that's arbitrary. Let's assume, let's assume that you're right. It's all arbitrary. But still, the end goal is that who's in control. Once you overcome your inclinations, and you you tell it, no, I'm not doing this. Why? Well, maybe maybe on its own in a vacuum, in a vacuum, indeed. Maybe maybe there's nothing immoral about doing all these things, you know. Uh, uh, writing two letters on Shabbat. Is there something so immoral about it? I don't know. Maybe there's a good argument to me. That's not. However, when you say I'm not doing something because God told me, right? even though I want to do it, so to be, I want. Really, the donkey was on top of me once. I, I don't want. My soul doesn't want it. I, I feel like it's me because that's who's controlling me. But when you change that dynamic, when you say no, even if you're saying no to something which is immaterial, but you are denying your donkey what it wants, you are slowly becoming more in control. And therefore, you're exposing your soul to these new realities, to the idea of God. You are now you're, you're enabling yourself to become a conduit of Tikkun Olam. You, don't, you might not even realize it, but now, once we 
like we've talked about this thing, but that's how the Torah works, perhaps. The Torah is honing us and making us into uh, beings, tools that are capable of coming along. We don't know it. We don't see it. We don't connect the dots. We don't say, how, do, how does all the Torah's mitzvahs, how, how do they contribute to me becoming a better person, me being in the world, but making the world better? We don't necessarily know how it works. But now we have maybe some sort of, of understanding of how perhaps it can work by creating this, uh, this dynamic where we take control of our lives. We hop on top of the donkey. Once you're on top of the donkey, well, that's what Abraham did, that's what Moses did, that's what Messiah, uh, the idea of Messiah is all about. But, and we see how it works. Right? We see that if you want to bring the idea of God into the world, how are you going to do it? Is that the significance? My, my memory is not real clear. Is it Ba'alam who is riding the donkey? Balaam, I was hoping someone would bring this up. If, if no one was going to bring it up, I wasn't going to mention it. Balaam, or Balaam, he is one of the great villains in all of Jewish history. In fact, he's presented as the antithesis of Abraham. Herkavo, chapters of the fathers that someone mentioned. Right? There's five things that, 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 that are the marks of a student of Abraham, and there's five things that are a mark of a student of Balaam HaRasha, Balaam the Wicked. Yet he rode a donkey as well. What else did he do with the donkey? You know? He beat it. What else did he do with the donkey? And, and, and the donkey took control of him. And what, what else happened with the donkey? What else? He talked. He had a conversation with the donkey. The Talmud says, you know what else to do with his donkey? <laughs> the Talmud said that he slept with the donkey. What it's clearly telling us is that Bilam was not dominated the donkey. They were on par. They had a conversation. They had a relationship. Yes, Bilam perhaps had the potential. He had the donkey. Maybe he had the potential to become as great as Abraham and Moses. We know that the that he had the prophecy as great as Moses. But to him, he didn't do that. He had. He was on par. He was. He was with the donkey. You know, he had the donkey and him he were was not. A donkey. Yeah. So, so that's a very interesting point that you bring up. Well, that's that. Now, this is, um, I, I want to try to now bring this to us, okay? So we talked about kind of big picture Jewish, Jewish mission, Jewish destiny, Jewish purpose. We saw about how uh, Abraham, Moses, and Messiah, the, you know, that, that three-prong process of, uh, of progressively fixing the world. And we also saw a deep secret as to how they actually do it and how the Torah is going to be the greatest tool that we can have to enable us to fulfill this mission. I want to talk a little bit about us as individuals. And not only that, uh, I want to talk maybe as, as a, at least one myth we'll talk about, um, how that actually brings us towards, uh, towards this, um, uh, on an individual, personal level, towards the Quran on our own, in our own lives. Uh, so we find, this is what you mentioned, I'll we'll bring up later on. We find in the Talmud the idea of a child in utero studying the entire Torah. If, you, if you're not familiar with it, it's there, it's in the Talmud. This is in the book of Nida, the 63 books of the Talmud. 
you need a toxic profile with laws of purity and impurity. And it tells us in this entire page of these tremendous insights about a child in utero before they're born and what happens directly after they're born. Uh, and we're told that the child in utero knows the entire Torah. As they're about to be born, an angel comes, smacks the baby on the mouth, makes the baby forget the entire Torah, and then the baby's born. Like bizarre. No, that 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 wouldn't that wouldn't work if it was a C-section. Either way, this is what the Talmud says. And this is a very famous, it's a very famous, uh, uh, I guess, um, visual that we have in Judaism. Most people don't know where it's from, or what. A lot of people say the angel teaches the child Torah, which is a mistake. The angel makes the child forget the Torah. Uh, they knew angels part of the story, so they just uh, they just kind of connected the dots for us uh, erroneously. Uh, but child in utero knows the entire Torah as they're about to be born. The angel comes, smacks them in the mouth, makes them forget it. Now there's a, a whole litany of questions that arise. First of all, how does the baby know the Torah? Who teaches the child? Who teaches the baby Torah? How does that work? And second of all, if you're going to teach a baby Torah, why would you teach a baby Torah if you know that the baby's going to forget the entire Torah as they're, as they're about to be born? Seems like uh, like maybe a misallocation of resources. You know, teach the baby the entire Torah and then just to make the baby forget it. Doesn't seem to be reasonable. Like, why would you do that? Okay, but then, but then you're then you're 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 uh, you're fudging what the Talmud says. It's not what the Talmud. I would agree with you if if, if it was ambiguous, but it's not what it says. Okay. Child knows the entire Torah. As the child is about to be born, angel comes and smacks him in the mouth. What does that mean? And makes him forget it. Seems to be like a very mysterious, very peculiar, very intriguing. Like the ideas are very interesting. <laughs> You're making a, a you're, 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 what you're trying to say essentially is that the the world at large and the world which is a human is kind of parallel. Yeah. In fact, we do find in Jewish writings that the man is called an olam katan. Man is called a small world. A man is called a small world. Um, so yes, there is there is there does seem to be this parallel. That it's just between the world at large and the world that is man. So I do think that there's, that there's room to go with that idea. Very interesting. But yeah, I think like, some good questions exist, right? Why would you think Shalat Torah? What does it mean Shalat knows the whole Torah? Why would, what's, what does it mean smack them in the mouth? What does it mean they forget it? Why, you know, what's the value of this? Why do we need to know this? Like, how does this impact us? You know, let's assume it's all true. Then so what? What does it mean for us? What can we glean from this lesson? So either way, uh, I want to I maybe... Go a little inside baseball here, um, but I'll try to. If, uh, if if the if the if the textual particularities bore you, I'll tell you when to wake up. Okay. <laughs> um, so the Talmud. You go ahead. I, I had a question. Um, 
So it's still there. Mm. Very interesting. What a callback. That's an amazing callback. We know Abraham did it. There is precedent for this. Abraham did it. Abraham managed to uncover that Torah. So it's there. Abraham got it. It's an amazing point. You guys are, you guys are, you guys are a great audience so far. <laughs> I have one question. Yes. I thought, uh, what, what would be the point of giving the Torah, I can get to it, to the child uh, in utero, or even because presuming that the child does not have a soul under the idea that the nephesh does not provide the physical body and the nephesh goes after birth, so why would you give this information to somebody who's not even Good question, uh, but it's based on a, on a false presupposition. So, um, because we do find another Talmud, this is from Sanhedrin, back to Sanhedrin. We mentioned Sanhedrin before. Earlier, we mentioned Sanhedrin with regards to the six thousand year world, uh, page ninety-seven A. This is from Sanhedrin ninety-one B. No, A and B, by the way. If you don't know if you ever hear that mentioned, A is one side of the page, and then B is the other side of the page. Um, it's not. There's no. That's all it means. So, so let's just go back to this. So, Talmud needed to say, as a child, the Yudra knows the whole Torah, angels come to forget them, and they're born. Now, it brings a source from the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis says, Lefetach chatas rovitz, at the entrance, sin crouches. And that is the source that the Talmud uses to uh, support the idea of a child forgetting the entire Torah. Because at the entrance, at the entrance of the world, sin crouches. Because if you don't know Torah, you have, you have room to sin. That's a simple understanding, right? That's the verse in Genesis, uh, when God talks to Cain, he tells him at the entrance sin crouches, and the Talmud uses that as a proof, textual proof, for the idea of a traffic in the entire Torah in utero. It said this is inside baseball, if this bores you, I'll wake you up when you need to be woken up. Now, in, <clears throat> that's the book of Medina 30b. In the book of Sanhedrin 91b, it asks the question, when does someone get a soul? And when does someone get a Yetzirah, an evil inclination? And it says that someone gets a soul at conception. Now, you agree that there is, there is something that changed that 30 days after birth, but not this. Someone gets a soul at conception. And someone gets a Yetzirah, an evil inclination, at birth. And the Talmud proves it. And you know what verse it brings to prove? At the entrance, sin crouches. The fetach chatas rovates. The same exact verse that it used already for something else. And as we know, when the Talmud uses verses to deduce laws, it can use one verse for one law. One verse for one idea. Thus, ask the great commentator of the Maharal, how is it possible, how is it fair, how is it reasonable to use the very same verse in Genesis, at the entrance, sin crouches, in one place in the Talmud to tell us the child forgets the entire Torah at birth, the other Talmud tells us the child gets the Yetzirah, the evil creation at birth. It seems to be two disparate ideas. How could he use it from one verse? That's the question, that's the question that is asked. And he answers as follows, and this is where you wake up, guys. At birth, at conception, at conception, child gets a 
neshama, the soul. And the soul does not need to be taught Torah. Why? Because the soul knows Torah innately. Remember, the soul is something entirely different than anything we are familiar with. The soul is infinite. The soul is pure. The soul is not physical. Thus, the soul knows Torah innately. The soul is this purest manifestation of spirituality we could possibly imagine. Thus, if you were to disassemble the DNA of a soul, you would find Torah. Thus, the child in utero knows the entire Torah, not because it's taught, rather because it's a soul that does not have the influences of the Yitzhak. What happens? At birth, only one thing happens. That's why you only need one verse. Only thing that happens is that the Yitzhak is, uh, is swept over, over a person. And as a result of that, they forget the entire Torah. Not that it disappeared. They still have a soul. But the soul is buried beneath this mountain of influence that comes from the Yitzhak. It's there. You could get to it. If you're Abraham, you did get to it. But how do you do it? By clearing away the Yitzhak. By getting on top of the donkey. If you're able to get on top of the donkey, you will have the Torah as well. You'll revert back to the child in utero before he gets the Yitzhak. You'll know it innately because you have a soul. That's how, that's how Abraham studied Torah from himself. right? Because he has that tremendous power of a soul that we all have within ourselves. And you can study Torah within, you can study Torah with nowadays, you can study Torah from without. But Abraham, even though there was no Torah that was external, he had a Torah that was internal in the form of a soul. Yes, yes. And I would say even more than that, the verse in in uh, in in, um, in, uh, in in Deuteronomy it says that uh, um, you don't have to go to the heavens, you don't have to go across across the seas. It's 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 close to you, it's exceedingly close in your mouth and in your heart to do it. It's there already. We don't need to go anywhere to do that. And by the way, there's a lot of proofs to this idea. But it's 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 evidence just on on on, on what we the sources that we brought. But what, what, what does this mean? It means our soul knows the entire Torah. What happens at birth, we get our own little broken world in the form of a Yetzirah, in the form of the evil inclination. As a result, we've got the entire Torah, not that it disappears, rather that it's, it disappears from our consciousness. Our job in life as individuals is to do a tikkun olam in our own personal world, which means to uncover the glory of God, the kingdom of God, that exists within ourselves in the form of our soul. And if we do that, well, we'll know Torah innately. Of course we'll know Torah innately. And that's what Abraham did. Abraham had a much harder job than we had, than we have, because we can use Torah as a tool to, uh, to affect that change, to, to, to harness that donkey. We can do that. He didn't have the Torah from without yet. He had to do it on his own. Right? And, but, but he did it, and he got the Torah, he studied Torah, and he was on the donkey. You know, he controlled the donkey. He, his Yetzirah was no longer a, an influence over him. He, he controlled it. He didn't, he didn't make it disappear, like you mentioned astutely, uh, but he had the full reins. But our job individually as uh, people who have responsibility on a personal level to do Tukun Olam, that kind of parallels the, the universal vision of Tukun Olam, which means to bring out the idea of God that exists within us already, but it doesn't exist as a baby's born. Baby's born and just left out of the wild. The idea of God will never surface. Why? It's there. It's ready to be exposed. 
but it's covered by a lot of schmutz. A lot of it's highly sullied under under a very very uh, 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 a formidable force in the form of the Yetzirah. And I want to say one more point here, kind of just give a little illustration of of, of how we go about doing that via mitzvahs. So I already mentioned in in general the idea of a mitzvah is to chip away at this influence that we have on our soul. It's to make a little little uh, indentation mark, a little, little puncher in this mountain that covers our soul or in this donkey that, that, that we're schlepping with us at all times. Whichever illustration, whatever metaphor works for us. But it's, it's, it's mitigating the power of our Yitzhah. That's what it is. And exposing a little bit, you know, creating a slight link uh, between our soul and, and our consciousness. Uh, that's mitzvahs at large. But I want to share with you one mitzvah. In fact, it's the very first mitzvah. It's the mitzvah given to Abraham. That's the first mitzvah given to Abraham. The first mitzvah given to the Jewish people, essentially. Uh, and the first mitzvah that a child accomplishes. Well, that was more of a directive. It wasn't a mitzvah that we have today. It's, 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 it's when I say it, everyone's like, oh, yeah, we knew that. Oh, yeah. Circumcision. It's in first mitzvah given to Abraham. It's the you know, first Jewish mitzvah. Huh? <laughs> it's the first Jewish mitzvah, and in fact, it's the first mitzvah that a child does. Right? A child's eight, a week old, and you give him a circumcision, which is pretty, pretty young, right, to do a mitzvah. Uh, and... First mitzvah given to Abraham. In fact, it's a very Jewish mitzvah. Like even Jews that are very distant from Judaism, they still fulfill the mitzvah of circumcision. So was the girl give her first mitzvah? It's a good question about girls. Yeah. So so even though uh, physically a girl doesn't do a circumcision, but the ideas and the themes uh, of circumcision are not for men only. But a good question: Couldn't why why, we why is circumcision so important that it's the first mitzvah given to Abraham? It's the first mitzvah that a Jewish child does, and it's the Kind of the, the brand of a Jew is a circumcised Jew, and in fact, it's the mitzvah that has been banned to us more than any other mitzvah. What's so significant? What's why do we do? Some, anyone know why we do circumcision? What's the it reason? Identifies us as Jews. Okay, okay. It's so a, a, why can we? I don't know. Do something else. We have God. Why don't we? I don't know. Where tzitzis also identifies us as Jews, right? We have a mezuzah on our door. Also identifies us as Jews. A lot of things identifies us as Jews. We go to synagogue. You know, we wear kippahs. A lot of things that we do. We have names like. Schwartz and you know Bergstein and Cohen. Yeah, right. You would hope, right? Uh, so, um, like that. I mean, yes, I agree with your point. I'm not trying to. to, to, to I mean, I'm a, just like it's just a classic tactic. You know, you you. The point is true, but there's more to it. I mean, Moses almost. Moses almost got killed because he didn't circumcise the point. That's exactly a good point. It's a very, it's a very important mitzvah. But what's the reasons behind it? Like there seems to be, it's, it's very significant. We know that this, no, no Jewish family, uh, you know, uh, renades on this mitzvah. No one. Uh, but what's the reason behind it? So I have five reasons. Go ahead. I can't recommend a lot, a lot of mitzvahs. Is there, is, we, 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 that's, a, that's a very good answer, by the way, to say that God commands us, we don't ask too many questions. That's a good answer. I'm not trying to deny that. That's so a very good answer. There, yeah, I'm racking my brain. 
No, it's a very good answer. It's a very, very good answer. But we do find a lot of times we find reasons for mitzvahs where it can make sense. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe there's some degree of... of, of, of five lined up, ready to pounce on us, and you can't come up with one. No, I, th- no, one of the, no, I think that that's, that's a good point, but I, I found sources for, for, for these. Um, so first of all, like this. So a baby's born, you count the toes, and you count the fingers, and you count the ears, and you count the eye. Everything seems to be perfect, right? Is there anything more delicious than a brand-new newborn baby? Smells so like just nothing more delicious. It's just a, it's beautiful. It's even more delicious than produce, right? And then you look at a baby. Baby looks entirely perfect, right? You're t- you right? Yeah, it looks perfect, and but the problem is it looks to be looks to be very deceiving. This child was perfect ten minutes ago, right? Before they got the yetsara. They had the soul. They had Torah. That's when they were perfect. Now they're imperfect. Decidedly so. But but not only that, I'm, I'm, but I'm saying that it's not perfect. It, you're right. You got it already after the, it left the lot. Right. Like, it was perfect ten minutes ago. It had the soul. Then had the Yitzhara. Now it has the Yitzhara. Suddenly it's not perfect. And but to us it looks like it's perfect. And God says, you know what? I'm going to make an imperfection that is obvious and I'm going to make you have to perfect the child, even on a physical level, to teach you that we have a lifelong mission of perfecting ourselves and perfecting the world. And you have to cool a lot. means the world's broken, humanity's broken, and we're here to fix it. Don't be confused by the fact that the child looks perfect and think the child is perfect. The child was perfect. The child hopefully will be perfect. It's not perfect right now. And the mitzvah of bris milah, one of the five reasons is that it's the idea of perfecting. Perfecting something that's imperfect. Number one. Number two, the location of this mitzvah is uh, is something, or it's at the epicenter of man's challenges in life. You would argue. Arguably. Um, the epicenter of, of temptation, the focal point of the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, is going to be the point where we do this mitzvah. Thus, says the Ramban, Nachmanides, one of the commentators, the great commentators of the Torah, he writes that the reason why we have a is to remember to suppress our animalistic instincts, and specifically at the location where we have the greatest desires to sin. Number two. Number three. Uh, we find a great story in the book of Menachos, one of the 63 books of Talmud. We mentioned a whole bunch of them today. 63 books. This is the one that talks about the uh, flour and bread offerings that are brought in the temple. And on page 43, it talks about King David, uh, the great King David, who is in the bathhouse and is depressed. Why is he depressed? Because he has no mitzvahs. And he looks around and says, I'm not wearing film. I'm in the bathhouse. I'm not wearing tzitzis. I'm in the bathhouse. There's no mezuzah on the door because it's a bathhouse. I don't study Torah because it's a bathhouse. This is the place that I'm totally devoid of mitzvahs, says King David. And then he looks at his and he's happy because he knows that there's one mitzvah that never leaves him and that's the idea of confidence right? Of, of, of being constantly involved with a mitzvah and there's a mitzvah which is permanently embedded within us and, and we never lose it idea number three idea number four the mitzvah of circumcision is not merely to cut off foreskin 
It's actually to pull down the skin and expose what's called in Hebrew literature the atara or the crown. If you guys remember all the way at the beginning of our discussion, many moons ago, many hours ago, <laughs> we talked about the first time it mentions the word Tikkun Olam. And it says, Letaken Olam b'machut shakai. To fix the world with the kingdom of God. In bris milah, we do a mitzvah of exposing a crown. The symbolism is that the mitzvah is about uh, a representation of all mitzvahs at large, which goal is to fix the world by bringing down the, by exposing the crown of, of the glory of God. And that's manifest in the, in the physical mitzvah of, of circumcision. And lastly, we know that this mitzvah was given to Abraham. And to be part of, like you mentioned, and I said I agree with your point, and that is that this is the brand of a Jew. This is the Abrahamic fraternity, and we're part of it, and we're happy to be part of it. And in fact, the Gentiles, they don't like that. And that's why the mitzvah of circumcision has been banned more than any other mitzvah. Right? And Titus IV said, if you give circumcision, uh, I'm going to take the mother and the baby and chuck them off a cliff. Hadrian, in the second century, said I'm gonna, uh, 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 he banned circumcision on pain of death. Even as recently as this past century in Soviet Russia, uh, circumcision was banned um, on pain of death for Jews. Thus, we see that there's something uniquely Jewish about this mitzvah. This is what Abraham did. This is how we joined this mission. Essentially, I like, I want to make the argument that these five Things are different elements of what the session that we had today. Five, five, five reasons for one mitzvah, but these are five different components of everything that we mentioned today. Number one, we're not perfect. Circumcision is demonstrating that we're not perfect. Yes, the world's not perfect. We got damaged goods by design, of course. We individually are damaged goods, right? We're not perfect. We're broken. We need to be fixed. The world is damaged. The world's not, not perfect. It's broken. It needs to be fixed. We, set, we do the mitzvah to, to demonstrate that. Number two, revealing the crown. Right? Our goal is to bring to Kulam, to reveal the crown of God. Number three, how do we do that? How do you reveal the crown of God? Well, you have to expose it from within yourself. Well, how do you do that? You have to get rid of the donkey that's on top of you. Right? You have to cut through this Yetzirah, right? You have to overcome and suppress your instinct. Says the Ramban, the reason why we do circumcision is because that's at the point of the greatest temptation of, of the Yetzirah. And we show there to suppress the Yetzirah. That's the way to do that. That's the way to fulfill the, the Tikkun Olam. And this is the Abrahamic fraternity. Like, this is what Abraham started. This is all started with the beginning with the chaos. And Abraham emerges and he starts this and he gets this mitzvah. And we're part of, by doing the mitzvah of, of, of bris we say we're Jewish and therefore we have the responsibilities that began with Abraham and continue to this very day of bringing the idea of God into the world. And lastly, this is mitzvah is so important because, it, because of what it re- represents that we have to have this with us, with us at all times. We cannot walk into a bathhouse and suddenly be devoid of this important message. It has to be with us at all times. Thus, thus the idea of King David in the bathhouse. Essentially, we find that this first mitzvah, which is Abraham's mitzvah, was the first thing we did with their kid, which is something that, yeah, we do because we're Jewish, but there's so much meaning and purpose and, and insight behind it because this mitzvah shows to us what, what it means to be Jewish, what, what's the Jewish mission, what's the Quran, what's the world all about, what's this universal vision that we have been touting for time immemorial. 
so, in conclusion, uh, I think that we can safely say that Tikkun Olam is not something small. It's not something limited to picking up cigarette butts on beaches or doing goodwill or giving charity or doing any mitzvah. Yes, that's part of it. That's true. But if, if we have emerged with anything, is that it's a lot, a lot more than that. Tikkun Olam means as big as fixing the world. It's a universal vision. Right? And it's part of a big picture. 6,000-year process. Begins with Abraham. Ends with Messiah. Has various touch points along the way of exposing the idea of, of God in the world. The Torah is the greatest tool. Right? What is our greatest hindrance in, in doing that? We have it at birth. We get to see Yitzhak. And that you know, disrupts this equilibrium that would be wonderful if we just had the soul. It would be fantastic. We have the soul, and then we have God, and that's it. We're good to go. Uh, and that's changed. We have to undo that. Uh, that's, what, that's our life's mission. And the Torah is the greatest tool we have to, to undo that. And we saw that how just even one mitzvah of, of circumcision, that actually is bringing out all these different variables in, into the fold. So I, I think that perhaps we have a, a greater clarity in what it means to be Jewish, in what responsibilities are of uh, being Jewish. We're chosen. Yes, indeed, we're chosen. But why are we chosen? Not because we won a lottery. It's because Abraham chose God, thus he was chosen. Uh, it's a broken world, yes, by design, and we fix it also by design. It's broken because God's not there, and we fix it because we're going to bring the idea of God into the world on a global, universal, national level, and an individual level as well. We're broken as well. And we try to fix that as well. From day one, we start, and our whole life is one process in trying to fix this uh, this fundamental flaw that exists uh, in our lives and in the world around us. So um, I think we could say that the the path is kind of, a, or the journey uh, is, is a long one. It's a serious one. Uh, it's something that we're designed to do because, you know, we are Jewish, and therefore we have all the tools, and we have the great, visionary leadership of people like Abraham, Moses, Messiah, but even people, you know, all the great Jewish leaders. It's, we have a lot to stand on, uh, but it's, it's a lifelong journey, it's a lifelong mission, and, and, uh, and our hope is that we could really do a lot in fixing the world. And if we think about that, that our personal activity can change the entire trajectory of humanity, that's a very empowering thought. Just the thought of my activities, my actions here have global consequences. That 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 makes our life more meaningful. Uh, so the goal is that we take these lessons to heart and we use that to become better people, uh, to expose more of our soul, to overcome more of our uh, of our donkey, to become more in control. Um, we help uh, people. Of course, that will be a direct result of that. All the other themes that we're familiar with in the, in, in, in uh, that, that we're told is to quote Allah, that comes as a natural consequence. Uh, but hopefully we'll be there, you know, we'll, we'll be contributors to actually fixing the world uh, because that, that's what makes our life valuable and makes our life meaningful. And that's that, guys. And thank you all for welcoming. It was lovely. And uh, thank you, and I appreciate that. I, I enjoyed it as well. You guys are a great, a great audience. Oh, yes, yes. So, torch, uh, torchweb.org, that's our organization. 
this is what we do. We teach, we do outreach in the form of education. Uh, we partner with synagogues um, of all colors, stripes, and sizes. 